0: Welcome to the Catalyst Church Podcast. We're here up in Humboldt County, California. We're glad you're with us. We hope that you're blessed and that you find peace and grace in the word of God today. Who Jesus says he is that when the world is kind of crumbling around us, we have to really put our our focus towards the source of our stability to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. And you know, he says he's the the gate, the vine, all these different things. And it's not so much of like, well, this is who Jesus is, and, and now we can be done with it. It's not that Jesus is this or that, or Jesus is this and that. It's really just layered on top of each other, giving us a fuller picture of who Jesus is, all these different metaphors that he is all of those things together there's this this ability that we have as people and within god's word to study every aspect of jesus every facet of jesus gaining deeper and newer understanding and perspective of christ the christ who loves us and who we love and i believe all of these metaphors that we look in through the bible it shows us the mystery of knowing that there's a mystery in knowing Christ. There's this endless knowability, this this continuation of seeking after Jesus and knowing him even more fuller, this everlasting insight that expands, doesn't contract, it expands as we walk with the Lord on this side of eternity, as we fall more in love with Jesus. And one of the most powerful images that I believe is so, so powerful is the image of Jesus being the Good Shepherd. And this is what we're gonna look at today. The, the, this image of where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. So um, Jesus is in John chapter 10. Uh, you can look really quick in verse 11 with your Bibles or it might be on the screen. I can't remember. Did I give it to you, Jay? Look at that. Awesome. So he says in verse 11 or actually in verse 14. Is that verse 14? Let's do verse 14. It says on the, in the beginning the, the middle part. I am the good shepherd he says. I know my sheep I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So this, this imagery that we get of Jesus being a good shepherd. There is a lot of imagery like this in the Old Testament. Throughout the whole Old Testament, really, Jesus or God describes God's self as a good shepherd. The prophets speak of this. Um, one of the most famous passages would be Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a very familiar passage to most of us. But why this shepherding imagery? I think we've like definitely romanticized this career path for people (laughs) back in the day. Like, wow, you must have been really great if you were a shepherd. Uh, We've made it into some sort of like biblical worth of a career path. But shepherds weren't necessarily known for their brilliant minds or their CEO style skills or their like impressive 401k. Like it was blue collar work. It was hard work. It was work that was done on the outside of society because if you were a shepherd, you would be considered ceremonially, religiously unclean, meaning that you couldn't go to the temple to worship God until you went through these religious washing ceremonies to remove any of the impurities that you got while you were working with the sheep. It was dangerous work. It was not safe or prestigious, totally unpredictable. It was like, it was kind of this, this really hard work with, or it was, sorry, lowly work with high effort. So it's like you're kind of just doing, you, 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 don't, you aren't really talked about much at a di- dinner party, or you're not the, the subject of people wanting to get to know you, but yet you had so much energy and effort that you'd had to put into it, and you couldn't sleep on the job in this work. It, for Jesus to use this language of him being the good shepherd, though, even though he wasn't equating himself to an actual shepherd, it was him equating himself to God. So that would have been very interesting for those people that were listening to him saying that he is a good shepherd. All throughout the Hebrew Bible, the writers and the prophets would write about God using this imagery and this metaphor of God being a shepherd of God's flock, which would be Israel. And this language really fits God perfectly if you think about it because a shepherd has to be trustworthy and reliable. They have to be honest. Uh, They must spend enough time with their sheep so the sheep are familiar with the shepherd's voice and can trust the shepherd's voice. They are attentive and focused, and they have the sheep's best interest in the forefront of their minds. They're constantly concerned for the sheep's safety and health and care and well being. And a shepherd guides the sheep, and the sheep follow. Now, I've heard like so many sermons throughout my life where people will talk, pastors will talk about the sheep because they're like the dumbest animals ever and they're gonna follow anything off of a cliff and that's why God calls us sheep because we're just like these dumb animals. I don't think that that is the case. I mean, sure, they're dumb and we're dumb too, I get it, yeah, we get it. But really, I don't think that the shepherd metaphor is there used there to show that we're dumb. I think it's because it shows us that we can trust the shepherd that is the metaphor that is used here. It shows complete trust and dependence on the shepherd, that, that the sheep are fully dependent on the shepherd. They can rely on the shepherd to lead them where they need to go. These, this language isn't so much about the sheep as much as it, is, as it is about the shepherd. And if we focus on the sheep, we're focusing on the wrong thing. We get to focus on the shepherd, and then that defines the sheep through the shepherd. No matter what comes their way, no matter what comes the sheep's way, they can trust, there's this restful trust built into the sheep that allows them to live in calm dependence right now because their shepherd is with them immediately. And, and Jesus says how, how the sheep, how he, he knows his sheep and the sheep know him. So this language that we have just read right here in the beginning of John chapter 10 Jesus comes back to, and it's not immediately, we don't know how long it is from him saying that he's the good shepherd, to this next conversation that he has with people. Some people think it's been like a few weeks, but regardless, it's very connected, so I think it's important for us to ground ourselves in Jesus as the good shepherd before we read today's passage, which is where we're going to kind of stick ourselves in. Any thoughts so far? Anything coming up? Anybody spent much time with sheep? So we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30. I'm going to read it through fairly slowly, and then we'll, um, we'll sit in it for a minute, and we'll see if you know what, what, what we see about who, the character of God through this, questions that might come up, um, confusion that might happen through this passage, something that's encouraging. We can just ch- chat about it, and then I have what, uh, what I feel like God has given me for us today. All right, John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. So there's a there, it's really specific what John uses in this passage. If you look back on verse 22 and 23, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, which is very redundant. It must have probably John was probably expressing the the weather pattern of the day, um, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. This festival of dedication is very interesting. It's Hanukkah. It is how we that's how what is celebrated today. Um, uh, the, it, it happened in it marks the, the rededication of the temple um, to the Lord. in 338 BCE, Alexander the Great swept through most of the lands of that area. He invaded through the area and he, he created the Persian Empire essentially. Um, and and Palestinian lands were also part of the, the area that was conquered and invaded over the years and this Persian and Greek, culture of something called Hellenism began to rise up through all of these different areas. It was very normalized throughout the cultures and the customs and language that was being adopted throughout every place that Hellenism was around. And for the Jews, they lived like mostly in harmony with this. It wasn't a big deal to them. Um, The culture wasn't like they weren't being forced to worship other gods or become pagans in some sort of a way. And, And it was just kind of like, let bygones be bygones. We're just going to live through this way because we're not being persecuted in any way right now. But in 168 BCE, there was a solicited king named Antiochus. Antiochus. How do you say that? Say it again. So whatever that is. Um, <laughs> and he turned, he, he had like all this negative attention that was building up in him towards the Jewish people regarding their customs, their religious practices. And for whatever reason, he was very, there were lots of reasons, but for one of the reasons, he was very upset about their practices and he started banning the practices of the Jews during that time, where they were no longer allowed to practice their religious, uh, their their religious practices. So uh, he took over the temple, he started sacrificing pigs on the altar, which was incredibly, incredibly bad, uh, and in the process, he actually was trying to create a new religion of Judaism and paganism together, trying to like create a, a new thing. Maybe we could all get along if we do this together sort of a thing. Now, there was this family during that time called the Maccabees, and they had had enough. And over time, they started to create enough movement to lead a rebellion, and they built an army, a small army, and they started to rebel against the king, they won battles left and right. They, they raided villages that were part of this whole movement. And in 164, the Maccabeans, led by one of the brothers named Judas, seized Jerusalem and cleared out every pagan artifact in the temple. And like in the book of Maccabees, you can read how specifically detailed he was with going through and cleaning out everything. I'm, I'm imagining him with like, Clorox out, the pig's blood getting out, like just making it perfectly put back together. The, the incense here, the oils here, the curtains there, like everything put the way that the Bible, that God's word had put it in place. And he prays over it all, and then he rededicates the temple back to the Lord. And people who were watching this, who experienced his movement in this way, started placing their hope in Judas Maccabees as possibly being the Messiah being the divine rescuer that the Hebrew Bible had prophesied about. And he fit the mold, he was a warrior, he was a devout follower of God, he was someone who could shepherd the people because he was somebody that was worth following. But in 160 he was killed in battle. And at this festival that was then became the festival that they continued forth in as the people, this is, this is called an extra biblical festival, between Malachi and, and, uh, and Matthew, there's 400 years of silence that nothing is written about in the Bible. And so this happened within those 400 years. And so this is an extra biblical festival that Jesus celebrated, even though it wasn't commanded by God, just like we celebrate Mother's Day, not commanded by God, it's an extra biblical holiday, and yet we are still participating in something like that. Jesus is asked in the temple, during Hanukkah about the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? And this would have had such crazy weight that was happening. People needed to know plainly. And it's because we've always been looking for a divine rescuer and we want it to look like a specific kind of person. And they're wondering, Jesus, is it you? And on this enormous porch in the middle of winter weather, Jesus says that he has been super clear about his objective all along, and anyone who had been paying attention would have known that this is who he was if they were just paying attention. And they say, okay, thank you, but can you just tell us plainly? Can you just write it out for us? Like, just word for word, just put it out there. I just need to know, are you the Messiah? Speak it plainly, make it as clear as possible. Are you the Messiah? And throughout the entire Gospels, you guys, not once does Jesus say that, like specifically, that he is the Messiah, except to the woman at the well. He he, he doesn't even say it there, but that is like one of the only times that he specifically says it. Everybody else alludes to it, and he receives that from them because he was so clear in his identity. He didn't need to put it out there for everybody else. If people are paying attention, they will experience it. Because Jesus isn't somebody who coerces people. Jesus isn't trying to convince us or make a case listing out all the things that way you might possibly believe and follow. Jesus lived out the kingdom of God and then invited people to follow him because he knew that he was compelling enough. His whole objective was to bring forth the Father into the world, to make the Father known. He was compelling enough for people to follow him. Now, you guys, the word follow has really been co-opted here in a lot of ways. In, in our life, we, we have been having to redefine the word follow because we live in an Instagram culture in many ways. And like, the word follow has to do with how successful you are as an Instagrammer, how influential you are. And so we kind of place, um, like, uh, and we, we try to figure out, is somebody actually worth my time and effort based on how many followers they have but there are many people in our lives that we might be following that we might be influenced by that actually has nothing good to bring to us we don't actually see their real lives and even the things they post aren't necessarily things of value but yet we are so influenced by how many people follow them believing that they have something to say because of the amount of people they have on that list this is not what jesus was doing here Jesus was not trying to influence people to follow him because he, has, he was like doing this cool thing. Jesus knew that he had the words to eternal life and the truth of eternal life, and anybody who said yes would experience that alongside of him. And he, as the good shepherd, he knew that his life was worth following. And he was confident that whoever would follow him would find rest in him. Like if they believed that he was the good shepherd, they would be made to lie down in green pastures and beside quiet waters, and their souls would be restored and refreshed. At one point in uh, John chapter six, and you're welcome to turn with me if you want, but uh, in John chapter six, Jesus is teaching this like really crazy sermon, this message, and they're just people are like leaving him. It's it's like if 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 your person that you're following on Instagram is saying something totally <laughs> off the wall, and you're like. Whoa, I thought this was one person. I can't follow this person anymore. Like, Jesus was saying some crazy, crazy stuff. And people are just like, I, I'm bouncing out. I can't do this. And he turns to his disciples and he says, uh, John 6. Yeah. Um, 67 and 68. So Jesus asks the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? Because it says from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Simon Peter in verse 68 says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, I mean, how many times, like, I know for myself in my own life, there have been so many areas of wondering what God is doing, or why am I going through this difficult thing, or what do I believe about God, or this, this whole area of my faith just feels like it's crumbling apart, or what do I do about this or that, and yet I'm so compelled by Jesus Christ that I just cannot do anything but continue to follow him. He's so beautiful. He compels me every single day, and there are lots of things, lots of voices that compete for my attention, but it is the voice of Christ is where I find life. And that is enough for me to continue forth, just like Peter said. So what does it mean to know Jesus? Because that's a, that's a big thing to, to wonder, to, um, to come to believe that Jesus is our divine rescuer and know him. I think knowing Jesus looks like a couple of things. I think first, um, knowing Jesus means I know that I am known. Knowing Jesus knows means that I know that I am known, that I'm known and loved and pursued by Christ more than I know and love and pursue myself. And and that Jesus knows me and knows my voice and knows my personhood more than my friendships, even my spouse, knows me better than I know myself. And every time I think of that, I think, like, gosh, if, if these people, if they knew, if Jason knew, if, if they knew what these things that I struggle with are, this part of my life, and they would leave me. Jesus knows that. And I'm still in his hand. And that is insane to me and such an act of grace. That's what it means to be known by Jesus. It means that I receive the fact that I am known and still beloved. And I also think that knowing Christ means knowing his word, like being in God's word and learning his ways and imitating what he did. We follow after Christ's leading, and following after Christ's leading looks like living like he lived in a lot of ways. His whole mission was to reveal the Father's heart for humanity, and that looked like undoing sin's hold on humanity. And sin is a big churchy word, I get it, but you all know, we all know what sin is like. We all know what it does to us and what it does to our society. Like sin makes us see that this skin color is better than that skin color. That that is sin. Sin distorts our perspective and makes us believe that it's our right to steal land. It's our right to steal a job or to steal a person. Sin damages the image of God that causes by causing women to hate their bodies and men to take their bodies. Sin allows hate and greed and violence and pride to dominate and distort the way that we see the world and the way that we interact with each other. And Jesus saw how sin made some take more while others starved. So what does it mean to then follow Jesus? I mean, I think it looks like, looks like this. It looks like coming together. Um, when you think about like a sheep in a sheepfold, that sheep is not by itself there's always multiple sheep we're meant to do life together we're meant to to follow jesus through prayer and through fellowship and and through knowing each other and through caring for the oppressed fighting for justice i think following jesus looks like radical inclusion it looks like speaking out against harmful sin in the world that's all part of what it looks like to follow jesus and i know that each of us follow him in the ways that God has equipped us to do so, but we're meant to do it together. And these sorts of passages, I know that as Americans, we have been discipled to see ourselves as individuals first, that we are like so focused on my own personal preferences, my own individual path, that even when we're in a church, we're very individualistically focused. But these were not written to individuals, they are written to a community. We're meant to really do life together in a way that is so Difficult for us to it's so hard. It is so 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 hard and I'm acknowledging that it is so hard to do life together as Individuals sometimes, but I think it's the way that we've been created to live It says here uh, let's go back to the passage in Let's go to verse 27 Jesus says my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So I want to look at really quick this pat this like experience of eternal life, because a lot of times eternal life has some baggage with us in some ways. Um, According to Jesus, eternal life wasn't some sort of ticket to heaven where this earth becomes a waiting room, where there's like this eternal reward at the end of our lives. For Jesus, eternal life was a current reality that began immediately when a person placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Eternity begins immediately. Eternal life is, with heaven, is a sense of now, and a sense of not yet. It is a current reality and a future reality, all happening in the same time. It it reveals a connection to God immediately. It reveals uh, a hope to come that is experienced immediately. For Jesus, salvation began immediately. It begins now. So when you are saved through Jesus Christ, you're also being saved every day. It's not just like this one-time thing that you know, I said the sinner's prayer, I asked Jesus into my heart, which that language isn't even in the Bible, but yet there's like this there is a start point. We all have make a decision to follow Jesus, but every day we are making that same decision to follow Jesus. It is an every day saved and being saved. And this truth means that there are daily implications to how we live out our lives as followers of Jesus. And as people who are in Jesus and who follow our good Shepherd, we take our cues from Jesus. We look to Him to guide us. We, we we seek the Holy Spirit's guidance, and honestly, Jesus sets the pace for us on this side of eternity. That Jesus, as the good Shepherd, sets the pace for us. I was a few years ago. I was. Um, I signed up to do a free class at a CrossFit gym in Arcata. I don't know, have, do you guys, have you guys ever done CrossFit? It's wild, people are real big. They're like flipping tires and shimming up ropes. And like, I mean, it is like a whole thing. It's its, it's own sort of church, I think. But maybe cult, I don't know. But I, I went to this class, because so I was like, this looks really interesting, and it's a free class. I'm gonna give it a try. So I walk into this building over by um, Redwood, Redwood Brewing Company, right, or what is it called? Redwood Curtain. Thank you. So I walk into this building and, and I'm like kind of stretching and checking it out. What am I going to do here? And this instructor comes in. He like greets everybody and um, sign a waiver and then and then he like puts this this list of what we're going to do for the day on this board. And it's a 400 meter run through the Arcade of Marsh, and then you come back to the building and you do 40 squats and then 30 Russian twists and 20 pushups and 10 burpees. I'm like, "Okay, I got this. This is going to be great. This is going to be so good." And and I was, you know, the new person, I wanted to prove myself. And and it seemed I mean, it really did seem like a competition. I, everybody seemed like I'm going to go against you and you and you instead of just being like, "I'm going to do the best for myself." So, I took off running. And I and I came in second to the building after that run because I'm kind of a runner and I was just like, "Feeling really good." And I'm like, "Busting through these these exercises, like squatting like as fast as I could. I was doing really well." And I'm like, at the end, we're finishing up. I am like catching my breath. I feel like I'm gonna throw up because I am just totally spent. And the trainer is like, great job, you guys. Three more rounds to go, let's go. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, what, oh my gosh. And I had to really slow down, of course, and I made it through the three rounds, but it was really, really, really hard because I put all my effort out the gate right away and I didn't realize I needed to pace myself to get through the entire thing. And I use this example because I think sometimes it's really, it can feel overwhelming and really exhausting to do all the good things that come about with following our Good Shepherd. Jesus has designed us to live in a certain way, not just obeying him in our daily lives, like making sure that we're being kind to the people that we love and, and caring for the people in our midst, but like there's big things happening in this world all the time and it can feel overwhelming. It can feel exhausting to have this cam- compassion fatigue is what it's called oftentimes. That we have so much that we're caring for all the time. And we're meant to pace ourselves as we follow the good shepherd. We can't do it all. We can't hold it all. Can't even pray for it all. You try to pray for it all and, and you'll never get off of your knees. You'll be praying all the time. Because prayers are endless. The needs are endless. Endless. So I wonder what it looks like as people of God to follow our Good Shepherd at the pace that Jesus is leading us in. At the ways that we're able to do what we're able to do in the ways that God has designed us and equipped us to do that. As individuals, yes, but as a church, I think sometimes churches go at a pace that is unsustainable, that they can't keep up with. Or they slow down and they just die. What is the pace that Jesus is inviting us into as people, Jay? We, um, are you saying that like we are called? Are we, I think that we're not called to do the shepherd's work. Like the shepherd mm-hmm. does the shepherd's work. That's right. And then, but we have our own space. Yeah. And and part of I think following is that knowing the shepherd's doing the shepherd's work, yeah. and we don't have to do all of that. Yeah. Like, n- but we're called to participate, but just in a way that's not the shepherd. Yeah, we are not the divine rescuer in a person's story. We are not the divine rescuer in a person's story, even our own story. Absolutely, that's good. Thanks for that. Part of that, with this compassion fatigue sort of a thing and and being a people of prayer, because I think part of the knowing comes from actually being people who are in prayer with Jesus and conversation is that, Sometimes there's only specific things that Jesus is calling you to pray for and to trust that God's got this and other people are praying for the things that you aren't meant to be putting your effort and energy towards. If if you're meant to be praying for uh, a family that's going through a really difficult time, then that's what you're supposed to pray for. And then you are also trusting that there's a different disciple who's praying for the Ukrainians right now. And your focus is on this family, praying for this family, meeting their needs, showing up in those areas that they need your help. Like if if maybe your friend has aggressive cancer and that is what God wants you to focus all of your prayer and energy and care for on your friend with aggressive cancer and trusting that somebody else, another disciple and God himself is actually caring for racial justice and fighting for tribal rights. Like somebody else has that because right now you've got this. God's got it all too. But you know, your own kids' anxiety or depression might be the thing that God wants you to, Jesus wants you to, to hold for and care for right now, and and the energy that you have for this person, for these kids is what you need to put your energy towards and you have to trust that there's another disciple, another group of people that are actually becoming foster parents and working with foster kids right now, and that's not your job. That's not what you're supposed to put your effort towards. And so being in the pace of Jesus as a good shepherd, it's recognizing where is God calling me to be prayerful towards, to be mindful towards, and to work towards instead of seeing all these things that I'll never be able to do any kind of good and change anything where is God wanting me to put my energy right now and wh- and and how can I step into that knowing that Jesus is with me all along so I think Jesus just like just sets the pace for us friends like Speaking truth, speaking worth back into our lives, saying that I know you and I love you, I affirm you, I think that you're beautiful. You're in God's hand all the time. Even when you think you're way over here, you're still in God's hand and nothing, nothing, nothing can snatch you out of that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And there are a million different voices that are competing for our attention all over us all of the time and Jesus is still there, whispering as the good shepherd, come and follow me because in me you'll find life, and you'll find life to the fullest. And it might be hard, and it might be difficult, and I might not give you all the answers that you are seeking right now, but in me is life. And I think that that sometimes has to be enough, that we get to follow after Jesus at the pace that Jesus has set before us, knowing that Christ is with us in all of it. Any other thoughts before we go into communion today? All right friends. Part of um, one of the things that we do every week here is, is celebrating the Lord's Supper through communion. We uh, have bread that represents Christ's body broken for us, and we have juice that represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of all things. All the ways that, um, that we have been keeping unsustainable paces in our lives, all the ways that we think that we're the Savior in somebody's story, all the ways that we put ourselves first, and Jesus says, Nuh uh, come back here, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me.